0: That issue that I actually fear more than China, more than terrorism, more than COVID, is internal division in this country.
1: It is the week of July 6th, and welcome to Episode 32 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. I'm Lester Munson, NSI Senior Fellow. Today, we're very excited to have our first sitting congressman join us. Congressman Adam Kinzinger is currently serving his fifth term in the House of Representatives, where he represents Illinois' 16th Congressional District. He serves as a member of the House Committee on Energy and Commerce and the Foreign Affairs Committee. Prior to his time in Congress, Adam Kinzinger served in the Air Force in both Operation Iraqi Freedom and Operation Enduring Freedom. He continues to serve as a pilot in the Air National Guard. So, Congressman, while this is a foreign policy podcast, I think I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about the issue of the day, the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis. You were called up in the Air National Guard because of the events following that incident. What are your thoughts about the things that are going on in our country right now related to George Floyd?
0: Well, you know, obviously the murder was tragic. And, you know, my hope is that we can make some progress out of it. I think nobody will forget the look in that police officer's face, kind of blank look while he was murdering him. What I worry about is that this is a moment where it becomes about politics and not about solutions. And I see that, for instance, in the Tim Scott bill out of the Senate. I thought it was great. Totally rejected the bill out of the House. No effort to talk to Republicans. And so I worry that this is just going to build into a November thing. And, you know, one of the things I think that we've got to get to the point of in this country is being able to talk about these issues. That means, first and most importantly, if you're a black person and you have experiences that I don't as a white person, you need to talk about that. At the same time, I think people who are white or frankly any other race need to be able to share kind of their thoughts and concerns too. I think if there was some way that we could just have these conversations without, you know, leading to accusations, uh, whether it's of racism or whether it's of, you know, erasing history, whatever it is, I think that would be good for the country. Unfortunately, it's just, you know, in a highly politicized time, it leads to highly politicized discussions. So, hopefully in the long run, we can look back and say that we made reforms in policing without ruining policing. The biggest challenge is recruiting good police officers. And there's a lot of things that people are talking about doing that are going to make that even harder. So there's a solution here, but we have to accept sometimes maybe 70% of what we wanted and we'll get there.
1: It seems like if you were really aiming for real police reform, instead of defunding the police, you'd augment police funding maybe have higher standards for officers, pay them more and expect more from them.
0: Well, that's exactly right. So I remember being in Liberia on a trip and the UN was training police officers. And quite honestly, I went there and I saw police officers that were very low quality. So we were talking about it and it's like, well, look, the UN's goal is to have X number of police officers by this day. So they're basically hiring anybody. They're not paying them well. And so really what you have is a bunch of men and women of Liberia in some kind of a uniform, but not a real police force. So what I realized there is you have to pay police officers well so that you can recruit the best and so that they stay Uh, they also should stay and get promoted based on merit not seniority so there's all kinds of things like that but defunding or you know making it really easy to sue a police officer for anything not just a violation of civil rights, but anything. Um, I I don't know how you're going to recruit a police officer in that environment. That's going to be something we'll look back on if we do it and say, we
1: got to reverse course quickly. So let's talk about your service in the armed forces. You were in the Air Force. You're still in the Air National Guard. You're an officer. How have those experiences affected your work as a member of Congress?
0: So it's been awesome, actually. You know, I still serve it in the Air Guard, and especially as a pilot, the commitment's a lot. So it's not your one week in a month as a pilot. I've done the math. It generally averages maybe about five days a month. There's some months you do more, some less. So the time commitment's been tough. But when people are veterans, they don't come out here with, like, special powers. Sometimes people, like, say, oh, well, he's a veteran, so he knows more. Well, it's not true. But, you know, we all have different opinions. The thing I've noticed, though, about the veteran class here, so I was only the second 9-11 veteran uh, in Congress, as far as I know. Now we have a ton of them. And the good thing is, we know how to talk to each other. There's kind of a sense of camaraderie. But where it's affected me is a little bit in what I know, what I advocate for. You know, actually, I can push back against. You know, sometimes you have these veterans groups that come and want benefits that are either too much or sometimes detrimental to the future of veterans, right? It doesn't incentivize veterans to go out and find a job and continue to be members of society. But the really the big thing is, I don't want to sound like a hero in saying this because I don't mean it, but it has put me in a position where I always think, okay, if men and women have died for this country and they have, we have to as members of Congress be willing to just give our career for the same cause. Doesn't mean you can't have a version of political or sometimes put politics into your decision on voting. But on things that are really existential, if you vote just because of your election or your party, you know, I think being a veteran has shown me that, you know, there are bigger things and there are a lot of people who have sacrificed way more than a career if I ever have to take that vote, the career ending vote.
1: So the the big issue roiling Washington today when we're recording this is these Stories that have come out about Russia possibly aiding the Taliban or Taliban-linked forces in Afghanistan. There's a lot of different versions of the story, U.S. government uh, reporting on it and from various agencies. You've had some of those briefings. But big picture, Russia clearly is an antagonist to the United States. What's your assessment, not necessarily just of this Afghanistan issue, but of the larger question of Vladimir Putin? How should the president be dealing with him? And maybe if you're willing to go there, how should the the next president or whoever's our president next year be dealing with Vladimir Putin?
0: The situation in Afghanistan is important because there is no doubt that Russia has been meddling in Afghanistan. They're really ticked off, A, that we're there. By the way, they're doing it under the guise of fighting ISIS, right? But they're also doing it because Afghanistan, like 90% of the Afghan people want the U.S. to stay. It's not some occupying empire. So there's no doubt about that. Where the question comes is the bounty issue specifically, and I've read all the intelligence, at least that I know of. I've read all the wires, and I think there's very strong evidence that it was done. I don't think, though, it's at the point where the president could make a decision to, say, attack you know, Russian GRU forces or something like that, but I think we're close. The tragic thing about this is the leaks make it probably harder to track that down because now they're going to be covering their tracks. But that said, regardless of the specific issue, we know Russia's been antagonistic in Afghanistan especially in Syria, now in Libya. You know, we know Russian Wagner forces have occupied, you know, oil fields and are, are destabilizing that area. So here's the answer. The bottom line is this, there is an economic battle that I think we're actually waging really well against Russia. You know, that's with some of the sanctions, you know, pushing back on their attempted energy dominance. There's a lot of instability in Russia right now, even if it's covered up. So that's good. And that's actually the most important part of the pushback strategy. If the president does reduce troops in Germany, that's bad. If those troops are forward located to Poland, as some think they might be, that's actually really good. But the bottom line is Vladimir Putin, who's a really smart man, He will advance till he hits a wall. The second he hits a wall, he backs up. Right. We killed 300 troops in Syria in a, in, a, in a matter of, you know, an evening battle against 50 U.S. troops. We crushed them. Vladimir Putin was pretty quiet for a while. And then he started kind of sneaking up again. So the key, I think, to containing Russia is the continued economic strategy. Do not invite them into the G8. That's the dumbest thing that the president said recently. But the other thing is when they do cross the line and they do start to threaten U.S. forces, slap them. Right, push them back, hit them, let them know that they can't do that. You're not going to start World War III, but you are going to send a message that there is a brick wall, and here it
1: is. Are you concerned that former Vice President Biden's approach to Russia will be seen by the Russians as weaker than President Trump's approach?
0: You know, it's weird. I actually do, and here's where the problem with you know what people see in the media versus what's happening. President Trump verbally and Twitterly does not seem anti russia I mean, the guy's never said a negative word about Vladimir Putin. It blows me away. It's really the same about Xi as well, of China. But the policies, you know, both the president's policy in China, that's even more that's going to be forthcoming, and his policy in Russia have been pretty hawkish. And I can't square the two, except that, you know, I think the president, for some reason, has kind of a fondness for strongmen. But his policies have been good, and he's approved those policies. So, you know, I, I don't know the perception of of, you know, what Putin will have of Joe Biden, I do think that Joe Biden will not be as tough as Donald Trump has been. He'll be tougher verbally. But we have to be fair here and look and say, you know, President Obama was generally pretty tough on Putin verbally, but not in reality didn't do anything for Ukraine with the exception of like blankets, literally, you know, and there was the hot mic moment where he said, I'll have some flexibility after the election. So, you know, we have to be fair, you know, speaking tough is important to an extent, but you have to be willing to back that up.
1: So you mentioned President Xi of China, you were appointed to the House China Task Force. A few weeks ago. Can you talk about that, the work on it? It's only Republicans. It seems a shame the Democrats are skipping an opportunity to have some bipartisanship here, to me, anyway. What do you think the agenda of the task force is going to be?
0: Well, just some context. I was asked to do this last fall by Kevin McCarthy,
1: and he and Steny Hoyer had an agreement.
0: They were going to do, I think, 15 Republicans, 15 Democrats. It was quiet for a while, and then at the end of February, they pulled out. You, You ask yourself, what happened at the end of February? Well, that's the Travel ban to China. Nancy Pelosi said it was racist, and she said everybody go have dinner in Chinatown. And I think they just kind of honestly were expecting to be able to play politics with the China thing, and they backed out. It's sad. A lot of Democrats have come to us and said they want to be on it, by the way. We'd take them in a heartbeat. Leadership's not letting them. So the goal of this is not to be partisan, right? I think every recommendation we come out with will be bipartisan. But what we're doing, you know, which is extremely important, is we have five pillars. There's like national security, technology, defense, et cetera. And we're going to list out, in essence, what the problems are. Not a 100-page, you know, boring white paper read, but a pretty basic synopsis about the problem backed up by actual legislation we can pass. So my hope in this is this serves as a blueprint for the next I don't know, a few years that we can check off through what we get in the NDAA, what we can pass in other areas. So the administration, for instance, and I think even the Biden administration will be somewhat hawkish on China, but Trump especially is and what he's planning, but he needs that backing by Congress too. The executive branch can do a ton, but not everything. And so my goal here is to have a readable report with actionable items that we can check off over time to make ourselves safer. We are finally waking up to the real threat of China. It's gonna take a while to kind of claw back, but I think we've made some progress in a real short amount of time as a country.
1: So it seems to me one of the big changes on China, at least in terms of our politics, has been the business community. The business community used to be the biggest lobbyists for engagement with China. Now that we're seeing intellectual property theft and a failure of the rule of law in China to protect American companies, their tone has changed, and that's kind of influenced some of where our politics have gone, and there's much less support for engagement with China. But we still do have this massive economic relationship with China. How do you balance the security concerns with China with some of the economic opportunities? Do you think we can have a total separation of our economy from China, or do we have to show a little more judgment than that?
0: Yeah, it's definitely not going to be a total separation. I think, first off, one thing we have to be careful of is Chinese influence on operations are really discreet and they're everywhere, right? And I think there's going to be a moment when they start engaging US companies again to get them to engage Congress again and say things like, hey, just a little carve out for us, right? Or just a little tariff relief here. And that's how they're going to work. And so we have to be ready for that. But I think, you know, ultimately, as I kind of foresee this, let's say there's 25 areas in a supply chain that we're very vulnerable. The one that got the most attention is PPE. You know, China literally threatened to cut off our PPE because we exposed this virus and we said. it's from China. It was. That is something that absolutely we can't be relying on. So I think we need to find three or four areas of that 25 that we have to have in the United States. And let's figure out how to get it here. Maybe the free market will do it. Maybe it's through incentives. Very last case in my mind would be sticks or direct payments. But I think you know the first two will take care of that. I look at kind of tier two issues then. So things that we don't necessarily need in the United States, but that need to be in a near ally. So whether that's Australia, Canada, et cetera. And then there's kind of tier three, which is just out of China, right? Stuff that we need out of China. PPE is one of those. If India was a big PPE manufacturer, we wouldn't have a problem. It was because it was China. So I think that's the long-term goal. I think the hope here is it'll take some tax incentives. It'll take some things like that but i think the free market is actually doing a lot as as it exists right now you had mentioned how you know businesses are waking up to it their supply chain was disrupted during coronavirus they then for the first time understood how susceptible their supply chains were to disruption which is huge and so i think the free market itself will do a lot And then there will be an area for the government. And and this is right now what we're working on, basically, is getting the information, which is massively complex, which is where is our weakness? Where is our need? As we see the free market take care of things, then I think we figure out what step two and three is. But look, two biggest kids on the block, they're going to have a relationship. We just need to make sure that we are not susceptible to Chinese blackmail, hacking or threats.
1: What's your assessment of China's kind of nascent foreign aid program? They've got this, they call it their Belt and Road Initiative. Other people call it the One Belt, One Road. They're spending billions of dollars around the world, Africa, Asia, even in Europe, even in Italy on infrastructure. They're really kind of pushing their capital out of China. They kind of have to for economic reasons, but they're trying to use it for their own national security purposes. They're trying to influence the decisions of government. We, of course, have our own foreign assistance program. We spend $30 or $40 billion a year doing our version of foreign aid, which is to promote free markets and democracy and human rights. How do you see the clash between those two systems? And should we be taking a more kind of hard-eyed view about when we encounter Chinese programs in the developing world?
0: So a couple of things. First off, if you go to any U.S. embassy now and you ask them what their top priority is, If they get to number three and they haven't said China, they're probably fired because every U.S. embassy in every country has a countering China policy. That's unique under this administration. I give Secretary Pompeo quite a bit of credit for that. Secondly, in terms of our policy, I think, you know, development human rights, all that is really good. But I also think we need to start looking at some of this too through the lens of, uh, in essence, a renewed Cold War, a different kind of Cold War. When you think about El Salvador, so my wife's uh, Salvadorian, so I've actually gotten to know a lot about the country. What was it, not under this president, but under their prior president in El Salvador, who's a big left-winger, he recently, for the first time ever, de-recognized Taiwan. And we're like, well, why would El Salvador de-recognize Taiwan as a nation? Well, a month later, they got $400 million from China. That's in our backyard, right? So when we look at $40 million in foreign aid, and we look at that we just spent $2 trillion just to keep the economy on, on moving, you can see that what happens around the world does affect us, and foreign aid is important. And so I think we need to look at it more through a lens of competing with China and Russia, quite honestly, and things like terrorism, so multifaceted while continuing to do human rights and development, because that's the greatest disinfectant to extremism is somebody that has hope and opportunity. So I think that's going to be very important. But one other thing that's going to be pretty interesting over the next year or two years is to find out how much China actually has invested that they don't have, how much debt that they have. We know how much debt the United States has. We don't know with China. And there are some indications that they may be way leveraged. And if at any point there is a concerted move to expose that, It could be very harmful to the Chinese financial system.
1: Yeah, you really do have to wonder about the way they're propping up some of these state-owned enterprises by not letting them be subjected to market forces. They're making them, you know, fat and happy. There's going to be a reckoning at some point for those guys. You introduced a couple pieces of legislation calling for transparency of country of origin for apps and retail sold online. Can you talk about that and how that kind of fits into some of the stuff we've been talking about?
0: Yeah, so first off on the retail, and then I'll go to the apps. The retail set, I had a producer from uh, Gibson City, Illinois that came into me and uh, he makes a little garden auger. So, you know, if you think of like an auger on a big truck, can drill a hole. He basically built that, but a garden tool and it was very popular. All of a sudden there were all these fake, exactly looking like it things popping up on Amazon and other retailers, exact knockoffs, right? So they would go to Amazon. Hey, this is stolen IP. And then what they have to do, they have to do that through a lawyer. And then you have to give the accused party 30 days to respond. Meanwhile, the accused party sells as much as it can, folds up, you know, and then comes up a different one. And so this was a, a way that was hurting a very small business in my community. And so we realized that there's no responsibility. So this is one thing is requiring, you know, there to be recognition, a faster streamlined process to make sure we're protecting US IP. Uh, on the apps thing, which, which to me is even bigger, is um, people need to understand if an app they're using is located in China. And why is that? So let's think about TikTok, for instance, which all the kids are using now, and even members of Congress, by the way. All of your information, all of your traffic, goes through routers in China. According to Chinese law and practice, China has access to anything that comes through there. If TikTok stores anything in China, CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, can look at it. Does it doesn't matter if you're, you know, baking a cake and doing something stupid? No. But what does matter is when they take all of your TikToks or whatever they call them together and they compile a whole list of things and now they know your patterns of life, where you travel, who was at your house when, they start putting massive pieces together. And now they have a case of blackmail against you. That's how this stuff works. And that's what people need to understand more is how Intel works. It's not a spy anymore dropping you notes. It's this kind of thing. And I think people just need to be aware if an app like that is in China or a place like Russia, for instance, with the same laws. Remember the old face swap app. That people were doing, or the old face thing. And so I think it's important for people to know that. So that's one thing, you know. Look, I mean, I can tell this till the cows come home and I still see members of Congress that know it and use TikTok. Fine. You know, it's their choice. It's stupid. But I think people should at least know that. And I think that education is part of the way to push back, as well as things like understanding how influence operations on Facebook and stuff work. It seems like people know it, but they don't care because as long as a news article comports with their worldview, they'll share it.
1: What's the responsibility of American social media companies to police themselves and to act responsibly? And then at what point should the U.S. government be getting involved in helping have a better outcome for some of the challenges you just mentioned?
0: I think we're starting to get to the point where we should. If you think about it, okay, Zoom, U.S. company, all their stuff was developed in companies in China. They can route information through China, which is why I don't use Zoom anymore. But there was an activist showing Tiananmen Square footage on Zoom. And Zoom banned him because, and they admitted, at the behest of the Chinese Communist Party, the Chinese government. So it's obvious that the Chinese government and the Russian government exert influence on companies like Facebook. The U.S. government at some point may have to do that. And the role is things like all the scams online that happen uh, where money is stolen from people. You know, They'll build a relationship for six months and then steal their money, not to mention the Intel operations. If you ever click to a link that looks crazy, And somehow in that it links to a Sputnik story. uh, That's Russian propaganda. There's got to start to be a responsibility for that. Look, I don't want the federal government to come in and regulate this stuff heavy handed. But there also is a point at which literally the internal stability of the country is threatened. And I think we're getting to the point now where these companies need to be required to take a little more action. And they're not motivated to. I don't blame them. They're not motivated to because the more accounts they have, the more traffic, the more clicks, the more money they make. If all of a sudden, Facebook has to shut down all its fake accounts, its stock's going to be worth about a quarter of what it is today.
1: Let's kind of go back to the China question and go really big picture. It seems to me like Chinese behavior for the last few years is so off-putting to countries that are democracies that they're really hurting any kind of advancements they could make diplomatically around the world. I mean, you're seeing Australia go through big changes in terms of defense policy because of Chinese aggression. There are other examples. Do you think China can really challenge the U.S. on a global scale if it continues to act in such a really nasty, provocative manner on the world stage?
0: Yeah, I think it's going to be tough for them to do that. Although, you know, I think the fact that they have big markets, a lot of capital, et cetera, is, is definitely working to their advantage. I was, I was like two or three years ago, I was in Australia. And this is, you know, when we kind of woke up. Australia at that time was waking up, I guess. And they had said that up until just recently, you know, there was Chinese corporate government money coming into their election system because there was no ban on it. They had just banned that. You think about the Italian story where they donated PPE to China only to have that very PPE sold back to them by the CCP when 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 that happened. So all my indications are that countries are waking up to this threat. I mean, if you think about it just prior to the virus, the UK was pushing back very hard and saying, nope, going with Huawei for 5G right? Done. We were frustrated. Like, this is the UK. The UK has now sworn off Huawei and is crapping out Huawei products as fast as it can and trying to find a good resolution. And so are a lot of other countries. So I think this is really awakening for a lot of countries. I think it, especially if you think about Eastern Europe and stuff, where I worry a little bit is, A, the president needs to do a better job of talking about the importance of alliances. I have no problem with him challenging alliances because I think that they need challenged. But he also needs to sometimes talk about how important it is. Secondly, I do worry that when the dust settles from all of this virus stuff and the economy and China comes in with money, the temptation is to take that kind of hit of money now or do we defend our values in the long term? That's going to be where the
1: key is. Do you think one of the things U.S. government should be considering is more direct support for the industries that are being challenged by Chinese national policy? You know, artificial intelligence, chip production, high tech health technology. Should we be more, have more of an industrial policy in that area to respond to the Chinese challenge?
0: Yeah, I think so. And I think there's always been this massive realignment of parties over time. This is going to be one. I mean, Lester, you remember all the fights we had about XM Bank out here, right? In my own party, barely could we get a majority to support the Export-Import Bank. And that actually makes money. Now, you know, we're going to have to do things way beyond the export-import bank and find those areas. And so I think to the extent there's, you know, there's going to have to be more money for DOE, the Department of Energy, and some of our advancements there for the national labs when you think about computing. Ensuring that we have access to rare earth minerals and that they're actually being mined and produced, which is one absolute reason we can't leave Afghanistan because China will easily walk in and take that. So I think those kinds of things are going to be really important. So, yeah, the government's going to have to be more involved. The hope is through incentives, the free market takes care of some of that. But where it doesn't, yes, we're going to have to do it. We face a challenge like we haven't before, and we face You know, against the Soviet Union, we didn't have an economy we were competing against because it was communism. China, it is. It's our economy, basically but owned by the Chinese Communist
1: Party. You're a member of Congress. You're in the first Article One, part of our government. The Congress is mentioned first in the Constitution. There's a ton of responsibilities Congress has in foreign policy and national security. How aggressive do you think Congress should be and how aggressive can it be in implementing its agenda? So I think back
0: before everybody out here became back crazy, there was a A lot of agreement that, you know, politics ended at the water's edge. Congress played a very important role. You know, if you think about the unmanned aerial vehicle drones, that was uh, earmarked by Congress. The administration didn't want it. And that's a really good thing to have now. So Congress can play an important role in that. The problem is now in this kind of new media environment, every member of Congress in the Senate thinks they're going to be president and everybody thinks they're smarter than everybody else on foreign policy. And so It's dysfunctional. I mean, I serve on the Foreign Affairs Committee, and we had our first vote ever that was partisan that I remember in 10 years, and we've had nothing but partisan votes since. That was when the Democrats took the majority. I worry about our role. So I generally see Congress's role as exactly what the Constitution says, declare war and finance it, right, and finance the military. I think there is a lot more, and I very much am a defender of the president's role as commander in chief. I think he makes decisions in terms of what foreign policy looks like. He makes decisions in terms of strikes under the threshold of war. I mean, if we'd have had to debate whether we killed Soleimani, we wouldn't have been able to kill Soleimani, right? There's got to be some logic to this. But I do think Congress can play an important role on things like you know, overriding the desire to pull out of Germany, for instance, or under Obama, you know, uh, we continued to fight for missile defense, uh, even though he was gutting that. And so those are areas where Congress should come in. But there is no doubt that there is like really unprecedented and quite honestly should be power for the president on foreign policy and war making issues.
1: Okay, last question. Do you think there's any issue that the news media is not paying enough attention to in terms of a a challenge to our national security right now?
0: Yeah, I do. And I think that issue, because they're part of the problem, I hate to say it, that issue that I actually fear more than China, more than terrorism, more than COVID, is internal division in this country. I was talking to my wife and jokingly, but it, it actually isn't far from the truth. I said, you know, if China nuked California, I feel like Some Republicans would be like, good, now we can win. The people won't have those electoral votes. And if they nuked, you know, Idaho, the Democrats would say the same thing. I feel like we're in a moment where the enemy is the other party. We hate each other. We're in this anger echo chamber. I never look at Twitter, but sometimes when I do, I then find myself down a rabbit hole of angry pissed offness basically and uh, and that needs to stop that's what i worry about more than anything is the internal division our inability to see each other as humans to listen to each other and frankly to get the same news we don't have common set of facts i don't know if the media can cover that cuz they're part of the problem they make money on it and i don't know you know what the answer is but that to me is job one right now and you know it's funny i on this russia stuff i'll come out and you know and say look i I don't think it's a scandal that the president wasn't briefed on it. Right. You know, maybe he should have been, I would have wanted to be if I was president, but there was nothing we could have done at that point anyway. Right. Um, And now all of a sudden I'm a Trump apologist. But if I come out and say, look, there's a real issue here and it's not a hoax. Now I hate Trump. There's no room left for, you know, your old boss, Mark Kirk, who was a very independent person and, We respected that. I remember when I got elected in 2010, countless people came up to me and said, be an independent. Don't do just what the party says. That's all changed. I'm going to keep doing it because that's why I'm here. But that's what I think is, in
1: my mind, kind of the biggest concern. Hallelujah and amen. Couldn't agree more. Congressman, this is terrific. Thanks a lot for doing it. Anytime, brother. That's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, please send us an email at nsi gmu.edu or tweet us at Mason NatSec. If you like what we're doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing. Hannah Petruzzi for research assistance, our own Grant Haver, our producer and director for his terrific work, and join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines.